0: Today's Workplace Podcast Disclaimer, J.T. Wilson. This podcast is intended to provide general information about various recent developments in employment law and human resources best practices. Nothing in this presentation or in the comments of Ms. Johnson, Ms. Shannon, or any guest should be considered as the rendering of legal or other professional advice, and it is not directed at any specific cases or circumstances. Listeners are responsible for obtaining the necessary advice about their specific situations from their own counsel. These materials are intended for educational and informational purposes only. The presentation and these materials represent the opinions of the participants and not those of their law firms or companies. No part of these materials may be printed, photocopied, or otherwise reproduced, recorded, or stored, or transmitted In any form and by any means, electronic, mechanical, or otherwise, without the prior written permission of today's Workplace Podcast. Welcome to Today's Workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed-Shannon.
1: Welcome to today's Workplace. Thank you for joining us for a discussion about some very timely and troubling issues affecting our communities in the workplace. Today, we are excited to welcome to our show, Mr. Felix Nader. Mr. Nader is the president and owner of Nader Associates Limited, a human resources security management consulting practice. Focusing in workplace violence prevention consulting, workplace security consulting, and security awareness, which helps manufacturing, processing, production, and utility firms implement and manage workplace security and violence prevention strategies. Mr. Nader is a nationally recognized, highly skilled workplace violence prevention advisor and consultant, retired from federal law enforcement with more than 30 years of investigative law enforcement program management and security experiences.
2: Mr. Nader, it is such a pleasure for us to sit down and talk with you today about workplace violence, but before we dig into today's topic, can you start by giving us a recap of your very successful and exciting career journey and tell us how you got involved in issues
3: related to workplace violence? My pleasure, Barbara. Belinda, thank you very much for that uh, humbling introduction. I give all the credit to the United States Postal Service and the wonderful client work that has allowed me to expand my expertise. Barbara, specifically, I spent eight years fulfilling those years in the New York division on the violence and addiction team, an assignment that i loathed when I was initially told that I'd have that work. I had no experience in that kind of work in my past training and assignments, and I just didn't know how contributory that I would be to the overall commitment and involvement. But it was the most rewarding assignment in my 26-year career. It allowed me to engage employees with serious issues. It allowed me to engage the union who were trying to protect their constituents from discipline and possible arrests and apprehension for violations of law. And it allowed me to talk with senior managers at the union side and the postal side to awaken them as to their responsibilities and functions in curtailing such behavior, educating their people. And then from the postal side, for management to hold their postmasters and district managers responsible and accountable for this kind of behavior through not necessarily zero tolerance as much, through the elevation of that mindset and understanding that we're all in it together if we're going to create an environment that is safe and secure for all to come to work. I've retired after those eight years, looking back and saying to my wife, honey, I no longer am getting those overnight phone calls, so perhaps it's a sign that it's time for me to retire. December of 2000, I put my papers in. February 3rd of 2001, I had the most grand grandiose of all retirement parties one could ever have. Along came September 11th, and September 11th, started. I started receiving phone calls from around the postal service, asking me to consider helping their organization on Long Island uh, manage the threat of counterterrorism from the people, premises, and property perspective. And I've been doing it ever since. Last year, I celebrated my 20th year, and I enjoy this work to no end because I get a chance to work with attorneys, who are smarter than Mm -hmm. I am, and try to coach their clients on how to be proactive by calling the legal staff before they make dumb decisions. And to that, I uh, offer an opportunity to be on this program. It's all for my two cents.
1: Mm. You make it sound very, very exciting, Felix. So I can only hope that I can describe my work someday that way. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we know that your work focuses on coaching and helping organizations implement and manage workplace security with an emphasis on workplace violence prevention. Many of us think about workplace violence when it manifests itself in mass killings. However, it appears that your approach to prevention would look at taking proactive steps very early in the workplace relationship. So how would you approach your consultation with a client interested in developing a workplace violence prevention program?
3: Very good question. Thank you, Belinda. I, I, I don't care whether it's a small, mid-sized, or large organization. I begin it with an education. I begin it with a rapport building, trying to figure out what it is that's driving their need to have someone like me coming in to help them resolve their issues. I do it by demystifying the vernacular. The HR community is is not law enforcement and the non-security community is non-law enforcement. And what I find in the security industry from those of us that are prime military and law enforcement, is we have our own vernacular, and that's threatening and intimidating. So I begin it by dismantling those communication barriers, raising awareness, clarifying OSHA's definitions of workplace violence, and then allaying concerns and myths about what workplace violence really is. For example, giving priority to active shooter before a serious commitment and investment in workplace violence prevention is not being proactive, it's being reactive. So you're gonna focus in on someone who's going postal before the person ever goes postal, but not making an investment, a serious investment and commitment on workplace violence prevention that will hopefully never get the organization to deal with a disgruntled employee who transitions from unhappiness to that that active shooter mindset. We don't wanna put the cart before the horse. We wanna develop a concept that embraces the organizational responsibility and commitment to prevention before the shooting starts. But
2: what if the client is a small or mid-sized organization with few resources? You know, they don't really have a security force, or you have a security manager with limited resources and an outsourced human resources
3: relationship.
2: How could you impact this management's violence prevention program and intentions?
3: Therein goes the credibility of a security consultant who understands that my job isn't to sell them anything. My job is to understand where they are. The limitations will certainly hamper capability of a small or mid-sized company from executing a what I would call a comprehensive prevention strategy. But I explained to them that the differences between reactive and proactive is doing something that shows your commitment to employee safety and security. That convinces a jury, when you get slammed with a civil liability for negligence management, security, or training, that at least you're doing something. So the investment doesn't have to be way beyond your capacity and your, and your capabilities. It could be very, very limited, such, for example, using the resources of supervisors who have access to your workforce, training them on how to observe how to coach and how to de-escalate situations. So you elevate trust and confidence in management's investment in their safety and security, causing the workforce to look up to the management team by saying, if they care about me, I'm going to care about their organization. And then we we establish that rapport where we see something because training has allowed us to recognize it, we could say something about it.
1: I wanted to just, if you'll allow me to backtrack just a little bit, can you Give us an example of of some of the more common types of workplace violence that you see coming up over and over again, because I'm thinking of an organization that may not have ever had anything, you know, that would be wondering, you know, why do I even need a policy? But if you can kind of think about it, tell us a little bit more about how it shows up, particularly in today's workplace.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you're looking at the pre-COVID-19 and the post-COVID-19, those things that happened in pre-COVID-19 are totally different than what's happening in post-COVID-19. In post-COVID-19, returning to workplace, whether it's traditional or hybrid, because of the way they were treated during the COVID, the requirement to protect themselves and be separated from family, friends, and co-workers, the political environment, there is a new feeling of angst amongst the workforce that has dismantled any sort of respect or any sort of need to be congenial in workplaces. So defiant behavior has become the norm. I'm not doing this. I'm not wearing my mask. You can't tell me what to do. So confrontations have escalated. Verbal abuse has escalated. Threats of physical violence have escalated intimidating behavior, disrespect, disregard for one another, failure to follow instructions, that's all part of that defined behavior. That happens every single day. What you don't hear about are those things that are non-violent in their design and orientation. What you hear about is when someone decides to go home and come back and exact their vengeance. But prevention, to never get to that point, involves managing those situations through proactive leadership, sensitive management, and engaged workforce that understands their responsibility to the organization and management's responsibility to provide them a safe and secure workplace. Yeah, so you mentioned active shooter threats, any other type of
1: threats that workplace needs to, you know, be prepared for?
3: Well, certainly, certainly, and and I don't want to go a little ahead of myself. But yes, on the OSHA 4 categories of workplace violence, It addresses those four things that they recommend employers should prepare for, the employee-unemployee, the criminal opportunistic individual, the patient-customer, and then the employee-unemployee crime. But within those four categories, Belinda, are threats and risks that impact the workplace. For example, everybody thinks that going postal, the active shooter, is a high incident causation of death in the workplace. But you know what really is the high causation of death in the workplace? Armed robbery arm mm-hmm. robberies to employees who work alone who work in establishments that require them to manage cash to work late at night and opportunistic criminals take advantage of those environments to exact their vengeance on them so it's arm robbery is really a major problem for most organizations particularly in the retail community
1: right so it really isn't about having a complicated workplace violence prevention Program, But having a comprehensive mindset or understanding of what constitutes workplace violence and what a prevention strategy then might look like. And you said that the comprehensive mindset or understanding requires that any policy look at an employer's design of the program around the work site and workforce-specific threats and risk in defining the type of prohibited behaviors and situations that someone might encounter as per OSHA instructions. So what else can you tell us about what OSHA regulations say about workplace violence?
3: In answering the first part of that question, Belinda, which is a comprehensive question by, by itself, by having a comprehensive mindset, management understands their overall knowledge of what constitutes workplace violence what workplace violence prevention is, and how to design the policy and training programs around those particular client needs. So if you are delivering outside services like UPS or FedEx or some utility firm, the risk that the workforce is going to experience is entirely different than the risk one is going to experience in a uh, building or an office environment Mm -hmm. or a warehouse. So we have to make sure that those employees recognize those unique threats that they may confront, and have the appropriate training in dealing with those things, of which I consider conflict management, good communication skills, de-escalation skills, important so that when you engage an angry customer, you don't escalate it because your ego doesn't allow you to manage the situation. You de-escalate it because training and understanding of what your responsibilities are and what acceptable behavior is to minimize risk to yourself And to de-escalate and contain the situation so every environment and i find this oftentimes to be the case belinda the assumption is made that workplace violence is workplace violence and the focus tends to be on the employee threat but very little in policies do i see the other three categories that deal with the non-employee type situation the customers the patients the vendors the unhappy spouse that comes into the workplace and exacts their vengeance and we tend to focus on one of the categories that deals with the employee and employee risk, and therein causes resentment in the hearts and minds of our employees when they say, Felix Nader will be in here today to talk about workplace violence. And the reaction is, oh no, here comes that boring presentation that has nothing to do with me. So by that mindset, it's understanding the workplace environment, understanding the employee's workplace environment, and then designing something that is specific to those needs and, getting their input from past incidents to make that training even more relative and interesting.
2: You know, you covered something fairly quickly that I'd like to spend a few more minutes on. You talked about OSHA and the four categories in OSHA dealing with workplace violence. Could you go over those again? Because I think those are important for us to understand.
3: Yes, yes, yes. So OSHA, as part of all of that free information it offers through their website or through their um, available services, says to employers, it's not difficult to start a program of. What is difficult is managing it depending upon your resources and the type of business you might be. But we provide all those services. And in establishing your policy, in addition to the behaviors that are prohibited by your employees, you need to consider, Mr. Employer or Miss Employer, that there are three other categories that are very important. And OSHA says, you know, under the duty to warn clause, Employers have an obligation to protect workers from serious and recognized workplace hazards, even when there is no standard. You've got to come up with your own approach to the prevention of workplace violence to minimize the risk impacting your workforce. And OSHA goes out of its way to provide these resources. And one is the four categories of workplace violence. Training should be specifically addressing those four categories so that the workforce elevates their sense of understanding of what they mean. So, for example, uh, Category 4 talks about personal intimate relationships, the old domestic violence threat. If a female employee, for argument's sake and for discussion's sake, if a female employee does not feel comfortable in having dialogue with her supervisor as to the reasons why she may be coming in late or have a need to leave early, Then that organization, by virtue of its familiarity with the spouse, is exposing themselves to risk when one day the judge finally adjudicates the final family act decision at separating the father from the children. The workplace knows who Felix looks like, but they don't know what Felix is going through because the spouse employee doesn't feel comfortable in sharing that experience with the supervisor. So out of humiliation and the possibility of being singled out for failing to come to work with her personal problems, she internalizes this. And then one day the judge says, Mr. Nader, here's the final decree. You can only see your kids one week in a month. The child support has elevated and your financial contributions has elevated. That's it. It's over. I know where my wife is, and it's one of two places. She's either at home or she's at work. So by virtue of the fact that the workforce has no idea of how to handle this kind of a situation, I walk in the front door as a total, as a visitor and get treated as a visitor. They call my wife out. My wife is surprised to see me. She runs from me. I run past the reception area. I pursue her. I corner her. I shoot her. And then I kill myself. Mm -hmm. So we could just dismantle this myth and develop and design training specifically around those four categories, you would be surprised at how more cooperation we would agenda from a workforce that up to this point, in my opinion, is only receiving the employee side of the problem and the employee side of the active shooter and the employee side of those associated risks that are diminishing the importance of those other three categories.
2: Mr. Nader, that was really such a great example Mm-hmm. I can actually see that happening. Yeah. The question I have is how does the employer address that situation and prevent that situation? So you talked about the employee feeling comfortable telling her supervisor this is what's going on and you know, this is what I'm dealing with and having that comfort level. But
3: once the employer knows, what should the employer do? Very good question. So earlier I talked about how my early relationship with someone desiring my services, I would engage them. And it's a hard pill for clients to accept that supervisors and managers and the C-suite has to be part of this learning process to create that mindset. Mm -hmm. To your question specifically. When the court issues paperwork or any sort of documentation that puts the employee on notice of what the following proceedings are, if you build that peaceful environment where the person, the employee feels comfortable coming to you, they will bring that documentation to HR. HR, by virtue of its culture and desire to help that employee, will explain to the employee what the organizational responsibilities are to support her. So moving forward with any, there's any sort of court-mandated judgments, they return those judgments to the employer, and the employer knows to restrict access to Felix Nader because they asked the victim's spouse to provide pictures of what Felix looks like. So now the organization receptionist heightened security awareness so that they know what their responsibilities are if there's contract or proprietary security personnel. They're heightened and put on notice of what Felix looks like so that when Felix approaches the front door, everybody can have an idea of the possibility of, of those intentions. But we never get there without having how to approach an intimate partner situation from the standpoint of making it okay to have a private conversation with a supervisor mm-hmm. and then holding that supervisor accountable, Mr. or Miss Manager, of not disclosing That sensitive information to cause embarrassment on the working room floor from others that might know her personal situation, protecting that individual so they have a sense of confidence in management's ability to provide for their safety, to include reassignment or even relocating her so that the husband or the spouse doesn't know where she's at for a week or so until the matter is resolved and adjudicated. So it takes a a dual effort with mutual responsibilities, one of being confident in telling supervisors, supervisors in being held responsible for confidentiality, and then management having an overarching cultural commitment to employee Mm -hmm. safety, regardless of the threat or the risk.
1: Yeah, I really like the way that you you highlighted the fact that culture of the organization is a huge part of this and it being successful and it's and, and it's tie into to workplace violence prevention. But what if take an organization that never had workplace violence? And they consider themselves to run a tight operation. Why would a comprehensive workplace violence prevention policy be necessary? Some would say that the more that's written, the worse it looks when there's a problem.
3: I get pushback when I do public seminars, when I'm invited as a keynote speaker. I get pushback relative to that very question all of the time. And my answer is twofold. One answer I give is if you really care about your employee, Regardless of whether or not you have a small, mid sized, or large organization, it's well run. And you're making an assumption that you don't have to have a comprehensive approach. All you need is for one incident to occur, and your whole credibility gets put on the witness stand when you're asked to produce any evidence of your caring concern for your workforce. And the first document they're going to ask for is your policy. And then if you produce a policy that at least gives you some semblance of credibility, they're going to ask you, how did you convey this to your workforce? And if there's no training to support the conveyance or the communication of that uh, policy, the doubt starts to creep in the hearts and minds of the juror who's listening to your credibility, your commitment and your investment in workforce safety. So it's important for every organization, especially small to mid midsize, to recognize that a lawsuit can hamper your organization. A huge, serious injury involving serious injury and/or death could hamper an organization financially, especially when we know that out of a jury awards run anywhere from four hundred thousand to a million dollars, depending upon the type of incident. And jury awards run as high as millions of dollars following a serious event. That kind of damage, financial damage, can put any small business out of business. But here's the thing, Belinda and Barbara, that I think doesn't often get presented to me in the form of a question that comes up from your pursuit here, is that employers are happy with what they have because they're under the misinformation that injury compensation claims protects them against an employer employee injury or an employee fatality related to the workplace. Mm-hmm. So because of that misunderstanding, they don't do a supplemental reinforcements of improving safety and security by going an extra mile, as suggested by OSHA. And they believe, because of this misinformation, that they don't have to do anything more. And oh, by the way, look at what happened in the Chesapeake Bay Walmart. That involved four employees and one Mm non-employee. They're going to have a rude awakening when this non-employee says, I'm going to take you for all you've got. You didn't provide any protection for me as a customer. So now how do you handle your commitment and your responsibility under the OSHA expectations to provide for a safe workplace for everyone and this one individual is not an employee. So you can't hide him under your injury compensation claims. He can use civil liability to his full discretion.
0: You've been listening to Today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. If you like what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T O D A Y S W O R K. P-L-A-C-E dot com.